Good morning. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful day today. Uh, it's good to be back here. You know, last Sunday I was in Denver uh, visiting Bear Valley at their uh, annual lectureship, and it was good. It's good to get to go home, go and see friends back there, but it's also good to be back here, to be home. Um, I'm glad that Lauren and I are, are back here, uh, able to worship with y'all. Uh, think about the best job that you've ever had. What's the best job that you've ever had? You probably have one in mind. Hopefully, it's the job that you have right now. Maybe not. Um, for me, it's the job I have right now, but um, for practicality, I'm going to talk about the best secular job that I had, uh, which was at Walmart. I didn't have many jobs, obviously, as you can tell. Um, I worked at Walmart, and I enjoyed it. I liked when I was a cashier there. I got to talk to people all the time. It was awesome. Um, that, that's something that I love to do, and so I probably annoyed a lot of people. They'd come in, and I'd sit there, and I'd talk to them the whole time they were checking out, and uh, sometimes they'd talk back. Sometimes they'd just roll their eyes and go along with their day, but it was what I loved to do. It was a job that I would consider great. It was a great job for me, um, even when I was uh, standing at the door at Walmart. It was a great job, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people that I worked with. Um, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a great job, a, a good job. Um, overseeing is a noble task. That's what Paul tells us. Um, just a reminder, last month I started off uh, a short series going through Paul's trustworthy statements. Um, there are five of these in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And basically when he says a statement is trustworthy, that word for trustworthy is the word for faithful. It's a key word in the book of First uh, Timothy. He says that it is a, a faithful statement, a statement that's true. Like, when I jump up, I'm going to come back down because I trust in gravity. When, when Debbie jumped out of an airplane, we knew that she was going to come down because that's what gravity does. Thankfully, she had a parachute, though. She made it down safe. It's a trustworthy statement. It's something that we can fully trust in. And the first trustworthy statement was back uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse uh, 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul said, I'm the foremost sinner. The, the perfect patience and mercy and grace of Jesus were shown through me, through his willingness to, to forgive me of all that I've done. And so uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the second trustworthy statement that Paul gives us. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, you can turn over there. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I think this goes back to that opening slide. Overseeing is a noble task. That's what Paul is trying to get across to us. Now stay with me because I know when this text is opened up, it's, it's when we're uh, bringing in new elders or something. It's that elder sermon, and so we need to see the qualifications, but there's no application for me as a 22-year-old young man that is not going to be an elder anytime soon, right? That, that's probably what you're thinking. Well, stay with me because I want us to find application through this trustworthy statement that overseeing is a noble task. I think there are four questions that we can ask about this statement. Overseeing is a noble task. There are four questions that we can ask that will really let us dive into this text and get out what Paul is trying to tell us. So to begin, the first question that we need to ask, this will go, there we go, what is an overseer? That's the first question that really we need to ask. Overseeing is a noble task. Well, what is someone who oversees? See, the idea of an overseer or an elder actually comes from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 18, verses 24 and through 26, 
Um, Moses has the children of Israel, and they're out. They've left Egypt, and his father-in-law Jethro comes to him and says, Moses, you've got a lot of work uh, to do. You've got a lot on your plate. See, there were uh, somewhat, somewhat close to six million Jews at that time. And so Moses, every problem they had, they'd come to him, and he had to help them solve it. God was their leader, but Moses was who they saw as their leader. And so they'd come to Moses, and they'd ask him to help them, help them with their problems. Six million people, that's a lot of problems. And Moses had a lot, of, uh, a lot of problems to solve. And so Jethro told him that what he should do is appoint men that are elders over the people, and the elders would help solve their problems. Um, elders were to be older men, wiser men. Um, Russ and I talked about this the other day. Um, oftentimes, younger men, myself included, are very arrogant. We don't have wisdom. We haven't seen things uh, happen yet. And so we don't understand the way that the world works sometimes. We think our way is the best way. And so he said, appoint older men, men that are wiser, men that have, have lived life for, for a, uh, a while, and put these men over the people. And so that's what Moses did. And we see this uh, idea carry on throughout the Old Testament. At the gate of every city, there'd be a group of, of elders that would sit at the city, and if you had a problem, you went to them, and they helped you solve your problem. They helped um, resolve that conflict. And so when the Jews in the New Testament hear that there are elders over the church, that's their first thought. They hear there are overseers and elders. They're thinking of this group of wise old men. There are actually three Greek words in the New Testament that refer to elders. The first is presbyteros, and that is the word elder. That's how it's translated. When you hear pre presbyteros, it's comparable to those Old Testament elders. Older, wiser men is what that's getting across. Men that are wise and that are guiding uh, the congregation or guiding the church. The second word is poimain, and that word refers to shepherds. When you think of a shepherd, someone that's in the field with a flock of sheep, and they're um, watching out for the sheep. They're protecting them. They're making sure that they're safe. That's the second word. And then the third word, third word is episkopos. And this word is the word we see here in this text in 1 Timothy. It's overseer or bishop. Um, that's, what this, that's how this word is normally translated. And uh, that word, episkopos, means to accept the responsibility for someone, else, uh, someone else's care. Really, uh, break down the word oversee, just flip it around. They're seeing over someone else. They're watching over them. They're making sure uh, that they're taken care of. Now, if you're like me, when I was back in school at Bear Valley, my first question is, why in the world did the New Testament authors use three words to describe the same people? That doesn't make any—it leads to confusion. That's all, that's all that it could possibly do, right? That's what I thought, at least. Um, we can actually look in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and we can see all three of these words used in the same place, and we know that they're all describing the same people. So um, when people think that there are, you know, bishops and cardinals and all of these uh, hierarchy of church offices that are described in the New Testament, we can tell that Peter's talking about one group of people here. Um, 1 Peter 5, starting uh, in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ— as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Those two words in, in the top row there, elder, um, that's the word presbyteros. He uses that word, and it, once again, it describes an older man, a man um, that's wiser. So you have presbyteros, and then uh, it's used as a verb there, to shepherd the flock, but it's the same word. Um, poimain, talking about one who's shepherding, who's watching over, who's protecting. And then that last word, uh, episkopos, that we see here in 1 Timothy is used there, talking about exercising oversight. 
See, the reason that they use three different words is each of those words means something slightly different about elders. If you take all of those words and you put them together, you fully grasp what an elder is. So um, when we talk about who, what is an overseer, that's what it comes back to. It comes back to these three words. He's an older, wiser man who's watching over the flock, who's protecting, who's guiding, who's taking care of, and he's looking out for you as the sheep. We are the sheep of the congregation, and they're watching over us. So once again, overseeing is a noble task. And that first question, what is an overseer? I think we've answered it. Now the second question, what does he look like? What does an overseer look like? And Paul describes that to us throughout the rest of the text of 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. Paul's going to describe the characteristics of an overseer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through all these characteristics, and I'm going to highlight each one for you so that we can go through each one and grasp what does this man that is an overseer really look like. Starting in verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. This is the foundation for the rest of the characteristics we're going to see. Above reproach. No one can come to this man and disapprove of him or the way that he's living. He's above reproach. You can't reproach him. You can't look down on him for the way that he acts because he is a godly man. So this is going to serve as the foundation for the other characteristics that we see. There's 14 characteristics, and this is the foundation of, of the other 13. So the next one, he is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. People look at him, and they see that there is one woman that this man loves above everybody else. He has one woman that he loves. In fact, the way that this word could be translated, he is a one-woman man. Um, that, that's the idea behind it. He's a one-woman man. This same phrase is actually used in reverse later on in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is uh, not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. The word having been isn't actually in the text. That was added by the translators. She is currently the wife of one husband, but she's a widow. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? This word, she's a one-man woman, is kind of how you could translate it there. It carries on even after, after her husband has passed away. So this isn't a checklist. When he says that this man is a one-woman man, what he means is that this man loves one woman. Even if she's passed away, he still loves that one woman. And this man isn't, I guess, uh, a modern word. We call him like a player. I guess maybe like a womanizer would be a word that you'd understand. He's not a womanizer. He's not going around flirting with all the ladies of the congregation. He loves one woman. That's the idea behind this. So he's above reproach, and he's the husband of one wife. If he was a womanizer, he wouldn't be above reproach. So you can see how that ties back to that being the foundation. So that's the second uh, characteristic that we see. The next one, he is sober-minded. Now, when you hear sober-minded, your first thought is probably alcohol. I hate to inform you, but that is not really what Paul's talking about right now because he's going to talk about it later. What he's talking about when he says sober-minded, there are other things that can make you not sober anymore. Um, to give you an example, something like anger. If you're so angry that your judgment is clouded and you can't think straight, you're not sober-minded anymore. These, this man is sober-minded. No matter what happens in his life, he, he stays sober-minded when he's making decisions for the church. That is a, a quality of this man. And then the next one goes right along with it. He is self-controlled. You know, we all have temptations. We all have sins um, that we desire sometimes. But this man is self-controlled. He, he looks at those sins and he says, that's not what God would want me to do. And he can control himself. So he chooses not to do those things. 
The next one, he is respectable. Respectable. He's able to be respected. You don't want a man that's a member of the church, that, that is an elder, that's, that's watching over the church, but people don't respect him. That's, that's what Paul is saying here. Um, this word carries with it, the Greek word here carries with it uh, a little bit of talking about his outward appearance as well. He's someone that takes care of himself physically, but then on top of that, it's talking about how people treat him. They look at him, and he, he's worthy of their respect. They respect him. Um, the sixth one, he is hospitable. Now, I haven't tried it yet. I think Russ was probably messing with me, but one of these days, I'm going to go over to Bill Sherman's house and just come over out of nowhere and ask if I can have lunch. I'm not really going to do that, Bill. Don't worry. But an elder is supposed to be hospitable. When you come over to their house, they take care of you. They, they welcome you in. Um, the husband and the wife are supposed to, to bring you in and take care of you like that. There's someone who's hospitable. I don't think there's a lot that I could say about that. You understand what hospitality looks like. And that's what an elder, that's what this man is supposed to be. Uh, the next one, he is able to teach. Specifically, uh, this is the word didasco, which is a, another key word in the book of 1 Timothy. When it says able to teach here, he doesn't have to always be up teaching Bible classes. But what this really implies is that this elder can refute false doctrine when it comes into the church. He sees people come into the church and they might look good, they might sound good, what they say might sound really good, but if it's false doctrine, he'll recognize that and he'll say, no, that's wrong. He'll say, no, that, that's not what this church is about. And this goes back to Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 when Paul's talking to some elders and he says, beware, there are going to be sheep and wolf, or wolves in sheep's clothing. There are going to be men that come into the church and they look like everyone else, they try and talk like everyone else, but they have ulterior motives. When a, when a wolf comes in sheep's clothing, what he's trying to do is devour the church, and the job of an elder, the job of a shepherd, is to stop the wolves from getting to the sheep. So when it says he's able to teach, he's able to discern what's being taught and know if it's true or not. The next one, number nine, he's not violent, but he's gentle. And it ties right in with the next one. He's not quarrels. Oh, sorry. There we go. I skipped not a drunkard, sorry. Number eight, he's not a drunkard. This goes back to the sober-minded. Um, he, he's not someone uh, that's always getting drunk. He's not, uh, not around much wine is how this word could be translated. Um, when it says that he is, is not a drunkard, going back to the idea of being above reproach, if he is here Sunday morning and he looks really good and he sounds really good and you love to be around him, but then you know on Saturday night that he's out getting drunk and being publicly intoxicated probably not a very respectable guy, not someone that's above reproach because you understand that that lifestyle is not what Christ has um, put forth for his people. Then the next one, he's not violent but gentle, and then he's not quarrelsome, and I think these two tie together very well. When things don't go his way, he's okay with it. He doesn't get violent. He doesn't start fights because things aren't going his way. See, when elders are making decisions for the church, that's a big deal. And if things aren't going exactly the way that he wants them to go, um, because other people see it a different way, he's not going to come to blows over it. That's what that word quarrelsome literally means. He's not going to come to blows. He's not going to fight somebody because things aren't going his way. It's, if that happens, if we do have a man like that that becomes an elder, what's going to happen is the church could eventually split. And that's why we need to watch out and make sure that men embody what, what Paul is saying here. The next one, he is not a lover of money. When someone is dealing with the church treasury, when he's dealing with all the money that the church gives, you don't want him to be someone that's greedy, that, that is going to take money. 
right? There are people that I'm sure you have in your life that you don't necessarily trust with money, and you're not going to just give them money all the time, right? As an elder, they're constantly uh, dealing with the money of the church. And so you don't want a man who's a lover of money, a man whose greed might take hold in his life. This next one, you can see I've highlighted two things. Uh, Verses 4 and 5, He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? If you look in this man's house, you're going to see the kind of person that he is. You're going to see what kind of person he is. Um, The word well here doesn't mean morally well. It, It means that Um, He's taking care of his house. His house is running smoothly. That's the idea. Now, obviously, as a good Christian man, you'd hope that it was morally well, but um, that's not the idea here with the word well. When you look at his house, you see that he's in charge, but his rules are still fair, right? Um, He keeps his children submissive. A lot of people want to make that their own point, that, that he keeps his children submissive, but notice that I've bookmarked pretty much the exact same phrase here, and his children submissive are right in the middle of it. Um, He must manage his own household well, and then later on, he continues to talk about managing his household. See, his children are to be managed and submissive in his household. That's what it's talking about here. Because even a godly man, eventually his kids might not be as godly as he is. Um, Look at a man like Samuel in the Old Testament. Samuel was a great man. He was a judge over the people. The people loved him. He never wronged any of them. But then look at his sons. His sons were awful people, and God didn't love them because of the way that they acted. His sons were bad judges, and eventually the people requested a king because of that. Just because a man is godly doesn't mean that his children will grow up to be. But when they're in his own household, they should be submissive to him. They should listen to his rules. He should establish, maintain, and enforce the rules in his house, while at the same time being sensible and logical and gentle and loving. He should be a gentle, loving father and husband in his house. When you look in his house, it should be managed well, and Paul tells us why. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The church is the most important thing, and if he can't even manage his own house well, if his children don't obey him at all, how is he going to manage the church where there's adults that are having conflicts? He can't manage the conflicts between his children. How is he going to manage the conflicts between the sheep? So he should manage his own household well. He should have love for his family. This next one, number 13, he may not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. See, rising to power quickly could give someone a big head. That's really what Paul is trying to get across here. Don't elect someone who's going to get a big head. Don't put someone in the place of elder who's going to get all puffed up. And this even includes men who move from a congregation where they were an elder to a new one. See, the congregation should know the person before they make them an elder. And so he, he must not be a recent convert so he doesn't get a big head. The congregation needs to know him, or um, he will incur the judgment of Satan. Uh, there are two interpretations of that. The first one, he'll receive the same judgment as Satan, or the second one, Satan will judge him before God. Um, I tend to stick to the first one. He'll receive the same judgment as Satan if he gets a big head and leads the church astray. That, that seems to be the idea here. You don't want someone who's going to lead the church astray. And then the last one is vitally important. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders. Once again, all of this is about being above reproach. It's about the church being the best church that it can be. 
And if you elect a man who isn't well thought of by outsiders, what are outsiders going to think of the church? Are they going to want to come and join your church if you say, well, this man is, is an elder here, he's part of the leadership, and they laugh at you. They say, that's the man that you elected? That's the man that you wanted to be a leader over you? Um, he must be well thought of by outsiders. He has to be a good guy, a guy that, that generally outside people think well of, right? So Paul goes over all of these points. Um, he, he gives us these 14, uh, 14 characteristics of what this man should look like. So once again, overseeing is a noble task. We've answered what is an overseer. What does an overseer look like? Now we need to answer, oh, there's all of them, all of them highlighted together so you can see them. Now we need to answer, why is it a noble task? See, in all my research, looking into this verse, he says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so many people look at this verse and they view the desire as noble, which I'd agree with. It is a good desire to have, and we'll talk about that some more later. But what Paul says is noble is the task, a noble task or a good work. That's the thing that's good here. See, why is it a noble task? Why is it a good work? Well, because these characteristics that we just went over, those 14 characteristics realistically are what all of us as men and women of God should be striving for. We should all want to look like that person. We should all want to be um, sober-minded, self-controlled, a one-woman man or or a one-man woman if you reverse it for a woman. Um, The recent convert one, we shouldn't want to be those that, that get big heads, that think so highly of ourselves. We can't be that kind of person. So why is it a noble task? Well, because it requires good men. And good men and good women are what we should aim to be. We should aim to be people like this. Also, why is it a noble task? Well, because we are caring for the, elders are caring for the body of Christ. Um, This morning in our class, we went over the crucifixion of Jesus. And it was, it was tough to talk about. It's emotional. It's hard to look at what he goes through. He went through so much pain And suffering every breath that he had to pull up on that cross was painful. And it was all to establish the church, the body of Christ. Some people believe that Jesus came to establish a physical kingdom and that God was mistaken. And that um, the Jews rejected him and God didn't expect that. And so the church was a last-ditch effort. What those people are missing, first off, is Isaiah 53, the suffering servant that describes Jesus so in depth. But on top of that, what they're missing is how important the church really is. Jesus came to establish the church. He came to take away sin so that we could have a relationship with God. That temple veil tore in two so that we could no longer be separated from God. So elders, it's a noble task because they're caring for the body of Christ. When you think about Christ as a body, Christ as the head, you know, we are the body parts. We're the hands. We're the feet. We're we're the mouth. We're the ones that that speak for Christ. You know, he's the brain. He's the head. He's the one telling us what to do. I want you to think about it like the elders are the nerves. They're the ones that Christ is sending the impulses through, and they're helping the body to do what it needs to do. They're telling the body, this is what Christ says to do. So it's a noble task because it's caring for the body of Christ. And ultimately, why is it a noble task? Because Having elders, having good men, like we described earlier, is absolutely necessary for the church to survive. It's necessary. If we want this church to survive and to flourish down the road, we need good men who are in charge. And I think we have those. So finally, the fourth point. The fourth point. Have we made it a noble task? Have we helped to make it a noble task? Are we 
trying to make things easy for the elders, necessarily. See, I've been in some congregations, and it's normally younger men that are around my age, and all they do is talk bad about the elders. Every decision that they, may, that they make, they look at with scrutiny. That's not the choice I would have made. Here was the better option. And oftentimes, they're wrong. Oftentimes, they're wrong. See, the elders are doing everything they can to make the best decision for you. And this is where we're going to get into some application for us. You see, I think I can speak for our elders, the four elders here. I think I can speak for them when I say that they love you, they care about you, they want to be there for you when you need them. I bet many of them have endured sleepless nights on your behalf. They've been praying for you. They've cared so much about what you're going through. They've stayed up in the hospital with you. They care about you. So what are you doing for them? Are you trying to make this, this task noble? Or are you trying to make things hard on them? Are you those that are going to scrutinize every single decision that's made, even when it's perfectly biblical? Even when it's the best decision that they could have made? Are you going to scrutinize it? Have we made it a noble task? Do we love and are we thankful for our elders? Are, are we thankful for the men that we have? I think we have four really good elders here. Just from my limited experience, I've been here about uh, nine months, almost ten months I think that we've had, I think we have really great elders here. I really do. Do we love them and are we thankful for them, for the work that they're doing? You know, every single time that I talk to Kevin, he gives me a hug and he says, I'm so thankful for all that you're doing. And I look at him and I'm just bewildered because I'm like, Kevin, do you see all that you're doing? I'm doing nothing in comparison to you. And I know our other elders are working just as hard. Um, These men are working so hard for us to make sure this church functions uh, properly, to make sure that we're Um, a well-oiled machine, that everything's going right, that everyone is taken care of. Once again, think about that idea of them being shepherds. We're the sheep. They're caring for us. They're protecting us. They care about our well-being. So are we thankful for these men? Do we love them uh, like they love us? And then finally, are we encouraging young men to strive to be elders one day? I think that's somewhere that the the church has, has fallen short, if I'm being honest. I don't think we often encourage young men to want to be elders. They look at this work, they look at the work of being an elder, and they don't see a noble task. They see men who have to work so hard after they've already retired and worked all their lives, they have to work so hard to keep the church together. Why would they want to be a part of that work? Why would it be a noble work for them? See, this is an important job, and one day the four elders that we have aren't going to be here anymore, and we're going to need a new generation of men to step in and keep leading us right? We're going to need future elders. So are we encouraging young men to want to be elders? I certainly hope so. Um, It's that important. Is it uh, something that you want your son to think about? Do you want your son to think about being an elder one day? Is there any job that's more important than making sure that the church survives and and is going in the right path? Is there any job more important, you know? Uh, Well, I I want my, my son's probably going to be something more important like an engineer. I don't think that's quite as important. You know, uh, maybe it's more, engineers more important than than preaching. Uh, I know, dig on myself. But being an elder is so much more important than all of that. Being an elder, making sure that the church is functioning right is so much more important. And that's why Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. We saw what overseers are. We saw what they looked like. We saw why it's a noble task. And I hope that you can see in your own life, you can apply this I hope that you're striving to help make it a noble task, that you're striving to encourage new young men to want to join in on that task. I truly hope that that's the case. Um, We're going to need leaders in the church 
and I hope that you're encouraging your young men to be that leader that steps into those big shoes that are going to be left one day. This lesson doesn't really lend itself all that well to an invitation, um, but we're going to have one. If you have a need this morning, uh, we'd love to assist you if you need to be baptized, if you need our prayers, if you need our support, if you need uh, anything else, uh, we'd love to assist you with that. If you have a need this morning, um, you can come forward and we'll assist you in any way that we can as we stand and as we sing.